One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Oh, my David here. How are you? Kieran Murphy. Is I'm it? tremendous, son. How are you, Kenneth Early? Uh, good, Kieran. Good to see you too. And you too, Owen. You're going to be even better when you hear about the exciting news we have to kick off with today. If you haven't got any plans for Monday, February 23rd... I don't. That's two weeks from today. I'm talking to our listeners here, Murph. Okay. You're contractually obliged to be at this event. Oh, excellent. Why not come on down to the Sugar Club in Dublin to see us record the show live Monday, February 23rd. It's our first live extravaganza of the year and it's a snappily titled one too as we bring you the Irish Times second captain's sports night with Rabo Direct. <laughs> ah, no, wait, wait a second, Owen, wait a second. I'm just consulting with my uh, calendar here. That's the week of Ireland against England in the it's Six Nations. It's the week before the Ireland in the Six Nations clash, Murph, I have here in front of mm. me. Oh, it's a clash, all right. So we'll have some big stars. Of cultures as well as, as well as rugby styles. And we can now confirm, we can, yes, we can confirm... Ken Early will be appearing on the night again contractually obliged to do so yeah <laughs> it's the Saxon against the Gale and uh, who knows who will be the victor on come and join us for fun food drink and some hardcore hashtag sports chat Monday 23rd uh, of February that's two weeks from today 7 o'clock if you want to be there just go to irishtimes.com forward slash second captains uh, you can apply there for some sweet free tickets uh, it's worth stressing now on today's chat on today on with today's chat I should say mm-hmm. Shane hashtag Jennings, sports chat uh, let's use the hashtag for the entire show. Shane Jennings and Shane Horgan are going to be in shortly to talk Six Nations as we start the build-up to Ireland-France. Now, the standout moment from the weekend, unfortunately, involved George George North's concussion. Uh, but at least one concussion it looked like. I know people get a bit annoyed when you're uh, everyone's watching at home and tweeting in saying such and such is concussed and this uh, amateur diagnosis. And I understand that that is, uh, it can be a little bit flippant at times. But it didn't look good for George North and I think everybody accepts that now. Uh, there were two instances. In one... He got a boot to the head and passed, uh, went off, was taken off, passed whatever tests he had to go through. So the Welsh medical team decided he was fit to play on. The second one, the medical team didn't see it. They didn't see his um, collision with a teammate and his subsequent fall, which looked, I mean, it looked as though he'd lost consciousness uh, before he even hit the deck. Uh, they say that apparently they don't, the Welsh medical team don't have a video uh, don't follow a live feed of the game. So they're looking at, what, I guess, at what they see with their own eyes. Uh, it seems to me kind of bizarre that this that everything is now filmed and that that incident went up on a big screen, according to Brian Moore on the big screen in the stadium, who was there, and yet the medical team uh, didn't see it. 
it's it's a little bit worrying. There's been a lot of a lot of worrying incidents in the last number of years. Some parts of the concussion protocol, some parts of the debate are clearly uh, being improved. I mean, Johnny Sexton being taken out for his own good for a couple of months was a big step in the right direction. But I can't help but think that, and we had a conversation along these lines for a few weeks back, you seem quite confident that players themselves were getting to the point where they would be a bit more honest and take themselves out. Mm, I'm not sure if you're revising that opinion based on, on George North. Here. I'm not blaming George North here uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but it certainly looked as though somebody needed to make the call there, uh, whether it was player, whether it was medical team, uh, or whoever it was, and it wasn't made. Well, I think we've come from a situation where no player would take themselves out of a game, given the culture that existed in the game at that time. I would say in the last two and a half years or three years, that has changed to... Uh, well, if 40% of players who suffer an injury, uh, a head injury like that, say, I don't care about the protocol, I don't feel very well, I'm coming out of the game, that's huge, I think. It, when you come from a, a, a base as recently as that, where it, that, that just wouldn't happen. I don't think every player is now going to do that. And we saw, uh, unfortunately, at the weekend, that George North was one of those players who didn't. But again, I mean, what are you saying? That George North made a fully conscious decision at that moment to say right I feel I mean you're, you're getting into the, the actual semantics of a, a knock to the head there if he was concussed is he thinking straight enough to say right well I'm not feeling well you, you know, he doesn't have a five minute sit down himself in that second half where he gets to think right really I, I probably should just come off here and in that case you would you would have hoped the medical team would see it and would act upon it uh, which isn't what happened. I don't know if yours. Uh, we'll get into this with. Well, I mean, uh, the, you know, the problem with George North. I mean, there's a few things. Number one is wishful thinking. He's thinking, "I'm going to be all right. I think I'm. All, I think I'm okay." He wants to play in the game. Um, pretty much every <laughs> everything he's ever learned about what it means to be a man says, "Get back out there on the field." So there's a lot of things which uh, are kind of lined up in one direction. You know, sort of. Uh, pointing him towards one decision. You know, if it's up to him, you know, is he gonna is he gonna chicken out? Is he gonna say, "Oh, well, I see, don't think it. I don't think I'm up to it. I I'd don't go- think I'm up to it." No, I'd agree with you. I would have agreed with you three years ago. I think that is changing, though. I think rugby players have. I think it'll take, take a long time to change. I mean, it's it's not. I mean, uh, you know, I suppose that the the thing is, people get more of a realization of actually this is more serious than we thought. We thought it was just the kind of, ah, oh, you feel a bit dizzy, a bit sick. You know, be a man hmm. and, uh, and get through that. Um, whereas now, maybe the, if, when the realization spreads, actually, you can really seriously injure yourself doing this. Hmm. This is really dangerous. Then that's the, that's the only way in which it, it can begin to change. But and it's funny, yeah, we're, we're using a very narrow uh, r- rationale there for why a player would stay on. We're saying it's just about to prove his masculinity. It's not necessarily well, it's that. Game. It's, also his, yeah, it's, it's, also, it's also the ego involved in wanting and thinking that you're still you're going to be better than the guy, guy who's going yeah. to come on. That it, it could be, in some cases, professional concerns. You don't want to be seen to come off the field. Not necessarily because you're not seen as a man, but because people might... I know that the doctors... This is necessarily true in George North's case, but the coaches start seeing that you're prone to concussions, maybe, or, or prone to injury in some way. So I don't know if it's just down to... That's certainly got to be a part of it in a sport like rugby. They, you, you don't. It's not good to be seen as... as not a hard man, Judy. But I, I mean, it's probably a little bit more than that. Though. You have your duty, you know. If you want to, if you want to desert your post, abandon your teammates, mm. 
um, just to save yourself, to save your own hide. Fair enough. And but, brain. Your own hide and brain. Yeah, and long-term mental health and so <laughs> forth. Shane Jennings and Shane Horgan are going to talk to us about this in a little while. And later on, we're going to talk about Tony McCoy's retirement with Eamon Dunphy. Eamon has name-checked McCoy quite a lot as one of his big Irish sporting icons. So we'll find out exactly what he admires in McCoy and what he's managed to do over the last 20 years or so. Uh, Tony McCoy made the announcement on Saturday in a post-race interview at Newbury. He was after winning a race. Uh, he was put to him, oh, you're 200 win- winner of the season. And he says, yeah, well, that's the last time that's going to happen. To talk about a bombshell at Channel 4, I wouldn't have been expecting. Certainly the, maybe the greatest name ever in the sport gives you an unbelievable nugget there. He flew to Dublin after that to prepare for the Hennessy Gold Cup, which was on yesterday. He won that race for the first time on Carlingford Lock. I don't know if you guys saw this tweet from his wife, Chantelle, which has been retweeted quite yes. a lot. <laughs> right, so Ken, you like this. Got in ta- into taxi at Dublin Airport. This is on the, 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 the evening before yesterday's race. Taxi man said to us, did you hear McCoy is retiring? <laughs> we roared laughing and said, he is McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly crashed. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, he's always wearing that little cap and, you know, often a pair of shades. You wouldn't necessarily recognise him if he got into the mm. taxi, into the back of your taxi in his in his CV. At least he was saying something. The taxi driver was being complimentary, almost by definition. Yeah. It was, there, this wasn't anything negative. I remember a story from Donald Logue Cusack's book, where it could have been around the time of the strikes, and Donald Logue hops in the back of a taxi, and the taxi driver's abusing Donald Logue uh, to high heavens to this random punter in the back of the yeah. car. Donald Logue this, Donald Logue that, cork, you know, strike mm. this, all the rest of it. And at the end, Donald Logue... Think he he didn't say a word. Got the car, the taxi man to to park up. Got out of the car, and just as he's getting out, shouts over to one of his his mates who he saw on the road. Um, John, whatever. What's my name? And your man goes, "What? Just what's my name?" Yeah, Donald Low Cusack. <laughs> <laughs> the taxi driver <laughs> speeds off, feeling rather sheepish and embarrassed. Shane Horgan is ready to talk Six Nations, and Lancer Shane Jennings has joined us in studio. Thanks for calling into us, Shane. How you doing? Uh, based on the weekend, are we saying now that England are uh, are clear favourites for the tournament? Um, no, not really. I think uh, it is like round one, so you know you got to be pretty good if you want to maintain that standard throughout the whole tournament. But to be fair to them, they're a battle-hardened bunch of kind of guys because uh, their league is that kind of way, and they kind of they replicated what they do in their league and they played with an intensity. You know, they've started very well. Whether they can maintain that. Uh, I also think it's good when you look at Ireland and they probably weren't overly happy with the way they performed, but they came away with a win. Good points difference to start. So, uh, yeah, there's positives from everybody who's won, really. Shane, there's an idea. We always talk about this idea that you build momentum over the the few weeks of the Six Nations. Does the Italy game maybe not count in that context? Is it it almost a separate entity? Um, No, it isn't. It it does count because um, it'll be a week together. The momentum maybe not towards ultimately winning a tournament in that um, respect, but momentum as in getting your plays together, establishing some of the the foundations or the the fundamentals of play, and then bringing that into the next game, and that rolls on. And I think that was exactly what was done. Um, The nature of the performance probably was... Um, it w- would have made uh, Joe Smith happy. Maybe not the execution all over the park the w- or in- indeed the intensity, but I think the game plan looked really effective. I think they did play quite conservatively in the first half. There was a, lo- there was a lot of one-out runners. Um, there was a lot of kicking out of territory. I think that would have been two things that would have been uh, driven home. And um, 
you know, get get the get a lot of pressure on Italy. You know, make them make a lot of tackles, tire them out, and then it'll open up in the last fifteen. And that, that's what happened. And um, when the player went to the Italian player went to the bin, it really opened up. And unfortunately, the rain came down. Um, otherwise, I think Ireland would have had two more tries. Is that what we are that now, um, Shane? Without putting too fine a point on it, Shane Horgan, uh, a kicking team. No, no, it's not. It's just it's definitively one of our tactics when we're uh, in our own um, defence and against Italy, um, you can beat them by um, by kicking out of territory, putting them under pressure on their own twenty-two, and waiting for them to make a mistake or creating something. That can be done against Italy. Against other sides, it's sometimes more preferable not to kick out of your own territory because generally they'll leave three back. Um, the, the back three will, will, will drop deeper, the wingers and the full back, and that is sometimes a, a good opportunity to attack from. Sometimes the best opportunity against the really strong teams because it's very difficult to, to force a mistake or to uh, create a, a, a try when you have your, your wingers up and a, a stronger defence or offset, uh, off, um, offset phase um, deeper in the opposition half. So that might be something that will change as we go later on in the tournament. I'm sure Joe will, will recognise that. But against Italy, you don't have to. You don't have to give them. Um, you don't have to give them the opportunity to make a mistake deep, and keep them into into the game. Um, against the other teams, you know, against England, especially with the nature of their defence, you may see that you know, attacking from deep may be uh, one of the uh, one of the few opportunities you get to break down the defence. Actually, there's been a few players have commented on this recently about sticking to your job, and this is something that's come up a lot, say, in the last two seasons where. Maybe the game plans are becoming even more strict. Uh, I've heard Conor Murray talk about it, just not becoming bored of what can be a boring job at sometimes. Is that one of the modern challenges where you know what you're doing may just look really repetitive and feel repetitive as a player, something you wouldn't have done maybe 10 years ago, but just sticking with it, sticking with it and believing it? Yeah, I think there was... I think one of the first times or second times we actually got into the 22, there would have been a pattern that myself and Shane would have been very familiar with, whereas they hit up off the back of the line out. Forwards went around, hit it up, then a back hit it up, and they exhausted it until they got to the far touch line. Um, that's something myself and Shane would have done a lot under Joe. Um, I can't remember what the name was now, but I'm sure it's pretty similar. But the principle of it is you're getting over the gain line, and I think that was probably the one thing that was probably frustrating from watching it, is that it looked like one-off runners, and at times it was, but if that one-off runner had actually done a bit better, had have maybe gotten to the outside of the defender, every time we kind of took the ball on, so everybody kind of understands that there's maybe, let's say, one, two, or three, as in guard, the first guy, the second guy is looking at the scrum half or coming up, and then the third guy out is really looking at the ball carrier. So that third guy was looking at Ireland's ball carrier. When he carried every single time, well, not every single time, but the majority of times the ball carrier went in, probably into the second defender, number two, and that allowed them to keep a bit of kind of composure in there or a bit of integrity in their defensive line. So they weren't getting shortened. So when the next guy came around or when the next back hit it up, it looked like they were running into a brick wall. And that kind of was the story of the first half where we didn't see it. Everybody's like, well, we're running into brick walls. Well, we were because we weren't getting to the outside of that defender. We weren't sucking them in. And one of their defenders was doing a pretty good job, in fairness. He was being pretty physical. He was being pretty destructive when he'd hit him and get back on his feet and then maybe counter rook. So we weren't committing too many players into the Italian rook. So they had a lot of numbers and they came up. I think in the second half where you saw guys getting over the game line a bit more, Madden came on, picked the right option to hit Tommy O'Donnell, he hit a hole. Now, granted, he was running hard, but your man missed a tackle, and then he 
went through, you know. So you kind of, like Shane was saying, you do have to break them down. And because they're making that amount of tackles, that's where the errors come in. Eventually, it's going to pay off. And I think that's the thing. When you do stick to your job, when you do stick to your role, you mightn't get it the first time, the second time, but maybe the fourth or fifth time, you'll get it. And that's where you kind of see teams breaking away. And that's where you have to trust the system. So when you get it once, maybe like you saw Tommy getting his try, you could see the energy and the intensity and everybody rising to it. Unfortunately, the rain came down and then it was a bit disjointed with a lot of subs coming on. But I think Joe was pretty much happy with that team and that relative inexperience that he put on the pitch came away with a win and a decent enough points difference. Are these the kind of areas, Shane, do you think where the return of Jamie Heaslip, if he's back next week, Johnny Sexton, who will be back next week, maybe Sean O'Brien, if if they think he can make it, are these kind of areas where we'll see that difference? Um, there's a couple of, you know, couple of areas that they can change. Um, I, I don't particularly like having the one-out runners, uh, as Shay mentioned, um, because very often it's hard to, you know, hard to execute that perfectly. You have to get your timing right. I think the player has to be coming on at a lot of pace. Uh, as Shane said, there has to be outside uh, the third defender, and uh, you need a really strong fight um, or, or possibly a leech to get the ball back fast. Now. Um, if we are implementing that, if we are continuing to do that, yes, I think um, um, Jamie Heaslip is a better carrier in, in that regard. So he, he he'd be excellent to have um, O'Brien if he was fit. I don't know. I think it's a bit too much of a risk uh, to put him on, um, having had so little time and and without getting any game time against Italy. It but would you'd like certainly to, be a you'd risk. like to actually change up the approach altogether. Well, I think, yeah, I don't think that the one-out runners are going to serve us uh, well against France. I think it would be very difficult. But even if we are using them, um, I think that if we had, you know, with Heaslip and O'Brien, they're more effective runners. And also, because they're they're very powerful individuals, their timing doesn't have to be quite as perfect and their, their pace onto the ball doesn't have to be quite as much as uh, maybe some of the others. They can also, they don't always necessary for them to have a leech, which which is uh, to someone sort of push them through the rook th- uh, because they're so good on, the, on the, their feet and they're so powerful. I think, Shane, as you're probably aware, is I don't think they probably intended to go off one-off runners. I think the game plan is to have two or three options going around the corner yeah. to get that guy outside the ball carrier. But because it's the first game, because they've only beaten each other for maybe a week or two, it's been pretty disjointed with the Wolfhounds. They haven't got that kind of familiarity with each other and things like that. So that will come and you'll see probably a, a ball carrier outside the initial ball carrier, whether he wants to play it on or whether, like Shane is saying, he gets on early, latches him through a hole. And I think that's what they probably want. I think when we're talking about one-off runners, I certainly don't think that was in their game plan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I think it will, I, I, it will I, evolve. I agree. I know, I know what you mean. I think that... It, it, but what happens is, uh, Shane, when they, they're definitely... They, they weren't set up well enough to actually move the ball out of channel wider, which they were in the second half. And I think... Because of the first game, and as you're right, because they haven't spent um, much time uh, together, then innately players don't actually take that extra risky pass, which may be the one, one sh- the shift uh, one out, or you know playing in a, a channel wider. You're right, they won't do it, and that's why it was good to have that run out against Italy because players have now got a lot of touches on the ball. They've had a huge amount of um, contact situations and they'll be more prepared and they will know that they'll have to um, be a little bit more subtle in their play uh, this week. Uh, and subtlety is the word there, Shane, because France uh, looked bigger than ever against Scotland, but they don't look like a, an especially smart team in the way that they play. Could they be... 
I'm thinking back a little bit to South Africa here in November. Could could France be sort of tailor made opposition for a Joe Schmidt coached Ireland team this season? Yeah, I, I think they can be deconstructed. Um, and you're you're right. Um, they're a big, very big, very physical side, but they don't have a huge amount of nous in the way they play, both um, in attack or I think defence. I think that they've got a problem um, around uh, their pillars because they do chase and it's they chase early and there was a number of occasions against uh, Scotland that there weren't wasn't exploited as well as it should be that there's um, their pillar defender which is the first one either side of the rook they move sideways very early and there's a couple of plays and we've seen them uh, for Leinster and we've also seen Joe implement them for Ireland as well uh, very often uh, I think they tried to, to use one at the weekend um, where they use the hooker and they have someone come on a short line down the blind side and also they have a, generally have a have the 15 coming from the from the blind side as well hidden and he's available on a late pass I think moves like that will, uh, will have the potential to cut this French team open Would you take confidence from Robbie Henshaw's performance given that he's going to be going in against Fofana and Bastereau which could be an intimidating duo to face Yeah very much so and I think that's what I tried to uh, talk about earlier on in terms of relative inexperience. When you look at Jordy Murphy at eight, Conor Murray is established with God knows how many caps are 10, 12, 13. Like, there wasn't that many caps between all of them, you know. So that's another game under his belt. He did very well in November. Uh, I think he needs to grow in confidence. I think he has to accept this challenge. It's going to be a massive challenge for him. For fan, is a class act. And Bastro, granted, he's one-dimensional, but he's bloody good at what he does. So uh, it's a huge challenge for him. But, like, he's physically well able for it haven't played against him and haven't played with him so I think he has to take confidence from that and uh, you know back his own ability don't be worrying about what Jared Payne is going to do or what whoever's inside him is going to do stick to what he's good at and make himself impose the game because I think it's a it's a real challenge for him and hopefully he can step up to it Yeah Shane Horgan when we spoke before the tournament you still weren't 100% sure about the centre partnership uh, are you any more certain after the game against Italy? Oh, listen I think they're very solid you know they look strong and you know any doubts that I had in the in the uh, partnership it wasn't necessarily doubts it was sort of just I wanted I really want a, a 13 that plays there every every week to develop the two individual players uh, they're you know they're good players and they're capable of playing well and I'd like to see them play those positions um, for their provinces so they can evolve and get even better. But um, they both performed uh, admirably enough uh, at the weekend. There wasn't a huge challenge or, or, you know, there was hardly any challenge going through the centre, to be honest with you, uh, apart from maybe late in the game. Um, But I think it will be a a good challenge. But I think that the the nature of the two centres for France... Um, won't be necessarily the most uh, challenging from regard to um, a a technical point of view for a 12 and 13 interacting together. They'll have a huge physical challenge because both Bastro and Fofana are very strong, very powerful runners and hard men to put down. Um, They'll have to, I think, implement a a chop tackle. I think it's impossible to go high on either of those two because they're so, um, they gain so many metres after contact. The real danger if, uh, for both those centres is if they break the tackle and they get the ball they get to release the ball in the tackle and I think we saw uh, England and when France uh, and when France uh, got their hands free and started offloading the ball then we see you know teams that can be very effective and it's still something that breaks down almost any defence if you can get your hands free and you can offload the ball inside or out it causes huge problems now that's what 
the Irish centres have to stop these two players doing. But luckily, because of the nature of their game, they do not pass the ball very much. So if France are moving the ball, it's generally out the back door or a wide pass from the 10, um, utilising the wingers. Actually, they're the ones who, who then put a bit of width on the game. The two centres aren't great at passing the ball. Fofana really doesn't like passing the ball. The only time you see him pass, generally, is uh, out of the tackle. And he's excellent at that. Um, but his, you know, I, neither of them have a strong capacity to throw a 15-meter uh, wide pass on the run straight to hand. So I don't think we'll be seeing much of that. As a result, the Irish defence shouldn't be stretched that much, um, and that was a sort of a, it's a comfortable place to be as a centre. But there is a daunting physical challenge to be to, to to try and stop those two guys when they're running flat at you. The other big story from the opening weekend was George North's apparent concussion, Shane Jennings, and. Uh, it's a funny one. We've talked about this topic quite a lot on the show and I sometimes worry that we talk too much about it. Maybe it, it doesn't exactly float everyone's boat, but I, I do think it's an important part of not just rugby today. A lot of sports it seems to be showing up in more and more. From a playing point of view, is it anything that you even consider or talk about in any way? Is it more of a almost a media construct? No, thankfully it's come a long way in a relatively, a relatively short space of time. Um, I know in the past when I've had a knock I've been the first one to tell the physio or tell the doctor to get out of my face or to kind of get out of my way I'll be grand, I'm grand I'm grand thankfully those days are gone uh, there's been a player mind, mind kind of shift and there also has been from the medical side of things I think uh, even even if you were uh, playing Champions Cup quarter final playing Bath you, you ship a knock you know yourself you're not right you, you would gladly come off if the doctor thought you should I'm getting older and I realise I only have one brain and I think I'm glad I've got to that stage where I've realised that because uh, it's too important. It really is. I've had friends who've uh, ship knocks over the years and they've played the warrior and they've had bad times with it and uh, it's not nice to see and I've also seen guys and I've been guys who've had knocks and I've been fine after it so it's a very difficult one to call because you're relying on someone to be honest with you if he's a young guy and he's his first chance in the game and all this kind of stuff all those kind of variables he's probably less reluctant to say here listen yeah I'm not the best here I think what we have to get to a stage is and thankfully with Leinster there's a good relationship with our doctors and I, I can't really speak for Ireland now because I'm not involved there but the doctor has to be a strong personality and he has to say, listen, medically, bang. And I think that's where the protocols have improved. I think in Ireland, they use the video analysis so they can look at the video and say, here, listen, what happened at the weekend? Wales don't use it. The Wales doctors don't use it. So they didn't see North falling or they did, they can use that and say, listen, I actually didn't see what happened. Whereas if a doctor can see if he's shipped it right in the chin or in the temple and he drops like a sack of potatoes, he knows immediately. They're saying he's not good. So that's also a massive advantage for the doctors. So they're not putting on more pressure by coaches or they're not putting on more pressure not having the full information in front of them. So I think from a player's point of view, we want a doctor to make sound medical advice or a decision there and then. Now, it's tough on the doctors, but the players have to put their side of it as well and say, listen, yeah, I'm not feeling the best. Or, yeah, listen, I took a bang, but I'm actually grand. I remember I came back from the first game this season, I think it was against Connacht, shipped a blow, and everybody thought, oh, I'm gone. And I actually was fine. Where the doctor came over, grand, he asked me where I was, I said, listen, I'm grand. He asked me what the score was, I said, we hadn't scored. And immediately by that reaction, he goes, okay, he's fine. Whereas if I'm trying to... Uh, 
and you're slow, then they'll know. So I think uh, it's a two-way system and a two-way street. You have to be honest and you have to be straight up. But players have to realise it's too serious to kind of uh, fob off anymore. And if we expect the doctors to do the best thing for us, we've got to be straight up as well. And it's very interesting. The point that you raised there, Shane Horgan, I thought this is bizarre, really, that the Welsh medical team don't have, or up to now, they say they will now use a video feed in future, a video feed, I should say. I mean, obviously, their video analysts are looking at the, the match from a from a statistical, from a, a rugby standpoint, but it seems incredible that people can watch this incident on TV. It can be shown on the big screen, as it was in Cardiff, and yet the medical team don't actually, well, the, certainly this is the statement that's put out, they missed that second, uh, that second incident. Yeah, well, the scary thing is that whether they had it on video or they had access to video or not, that he, he did ship that bow, and then when they assessed him, they still uh, didn't find anything serious enough with him to, to take him off the field. So that sort of leads me to think that, you know, was it just, is it just the aesthetic of it looking bad? You know, so that's, a, that's not enough for, for, for players to be taken off. And if there is a protocol, which there is a protocol in place for uh, to find out if players are concussed or they've shipped an octave, they shouldn't be playing, that didn't pick up the, uh, didn't pick up the massive blow that, um, that North took. So that, I think, is a real concern. Um, you know, video evidence or not, um, it, it, obviously the, the testing that's done should indicate that, or you know, that that a guy has taken a, a blow because not everyone is going, not every big uh, clash or, or or you know, bang on the head is going to necessarily show up on video. Um, so that's a real concern, and I think if it, it's because um, they didn't follow the procedure properly or because they took a risk with them, I think from a medical point of view, then you know they have questions to answer and they, they have to be held accountable for their decisions. Um, because now everybody could see that it was a blatant um, um, loss of, of consciousness and he was gone before he hit the ground. Um, yes, you know, there's, there's, there's people want to know why that wasn't picked up, and I think it's entirely appropriate to ask why. And you know, if the reasons aren't the right ones, then I think there's, there has to be sanction. Shane, do you think the optics do matter, as well as the points you raised there, which are all valid? The optics of a guy losing consciousness before he even hits the ground, which is kind of sick, sickening to look at. And BBC Sport are saying today they understand that North is in real contention to play next week against Scotland. But this is the Six Nations. I think there were seven or eight million people watching it on television over there. Um, this is maybe the tournament that for the Northern Hemisphere everybody looks at, that coaches at every level below it will take some sort of a read from and players will do so too and so will doctors. That Should somebody step in and say North actually no when, when it's clearly you've been knocked out, you can't be eligible next week no matter what the tests say or what the doctors say in Wales? Well, no, I think you have to say, you know, I think you have to go by medical opinion. I, can, I, I think that if a player um, you know, is, uh, loses consciousness, um, I don't know, by the way, if at the moment I would imagine that if a player loses consciousness like that, there's no way they should be going back on the on the pitch the same um, the same game. But I don't know that for certain, and I don't know whether you can lose consciousness for a moment and then pass the protocol, or if a doctor could say it's okay for you to go back out. Uh, I, I'd imagine that it, it isn't, but you know that is maybe an optic that uh, has to be looked at because I think if a player loses consciousness like that, it, I think there's a huge concerns of him back going back out on the pitch again. But with regard to fitness to play, I think. You know, um, there is a, there's a there's protocols that are followed during the week, and if a player meets that criteria, 
I think um, he should be allowed to play. I think that it can't be um, it, doctors. We, we're giving, we're putting them under pressure and saying, you know, your your decision is final, but we can't take their uh, their reasoning away from them. If they have you know that proper system in place to find out whether a player is right to go back, and he says he's medically right, then I don't think administrators should be removed uh, removing that player because of the, um, the as you said the aesthetic. Shane Jennings, what do you think just on on the fact that he may play next weekend? Is it a bad signal to send? Yeah, it's a difficult one. Um, it is. A, it's a real difficult area to call. Firstly, mine's an opinion. I'm not a medical medical expert. I'm not George North, so I don't know how he's feeling. I know from my point of view, when I've shipped a bad knock, and I'm going to do the test day on day to see whether I'm going to be ready or not. Um, you know yourself, and I think that's where George North has to be a, a big enough man to actually say, "Do you know what? Here, listen, I'm not. I'm. I'm not actually feeling good. If he doesn't pass the test, then it's fine. But if he passed the test," Like, who's to say a doctor is passing them? And that's where we're really relying on the medical expertise or the specialists in that area who are saying, yeah, listen, he's fine. Now, if it happens again, that's going to raise a question. Well, he shouldn't have been able to go back in the pitch. Um, so a- you seem to think that, uh, just to, to read what you're saying, that the actual the protocols themselves and the, the rules, structures that are in place are okay but it's up to the players to be more honest and it's up to the doctors. It's really up to the personalities involved no, I, I to, think- to, to be big enough and to be strong enough to in both in the case of the doctor and in the case of the player to make the right call 100% I think they, there's a there's a bigger picture here as well like you said with the audience like with kids playing like parents watching this and if they see something like that they go god I'm never going to let my kid play I think what we have to do is it's a it's a it's an incident that has happened okay but then we got to rely on the experts there's a system in place which has improved and which will hopefully improve in the coming weeks months days whatever it may be so that is a process that is getting better i think the player has to get away from this idea of being here listen i'm a macho man i'll just keep quiet the lads need me this weekend and someone might say hey listen you're going to be grand we have to get away from that because it's too important this is your brain you're talking about here so if he's not right he has to say listen i'm not right then the medic but Apart from that opinion side of it, the doctor has a system in place where that shouldn't really come into play. He should be able to go through a system. Yeah, listen, he's got past day one. He's going to go on to day two now. And if he gets through day two, he's in contention. He'll have a day off Wednesday. We'll reassess him Thursday or whatever the system may be or whatever the protocol is. If he goes through all those and he's ticking all the boxes, then in my opinion, there is no issue. I'm relying on a medical expert to say what you've done is fine. You will be fine. So that's what it kind of comes down to. But if the player, whilst he's getting, maybe, I don't know if this can happen, if he's getting through these systems or he's getting through day two and he's ticked the box and he's still not feeling well, that's where I'm saying he has to be man enough to say, listen, I'm actually not feeling well here. Shane Horgan, what about the idea of, uh, for the match day now, as opposed to this, uh, the, the uh, midweek protocols, but on match day, the idea of an independent medical doctor. And I know anytime this is suggested, it comes back to you a little bit that, well, you have to trust the medical people. They're going to do the right thing. But there is a big pressure on those doctors as well. It might necessarily be a spoken thing, but they are they can't but if they're human feel in some way part of the team. And aside from even any ethical concerns, there's also the issue of just how difficult it can be sometimes if there's more than one player possibly suffering from concussion at the same time. For example, Ireland against South Africa last year, Conor Murray uh, was taken out of it for his own good. Johnny Sexton, I'm pretty sure, had a concussion that day. And a couple of other players had suspected concussion. So it's quite hard for a team doctor, even if there's one or two of them, to keep an eye on everything. Is it not a bit of a no-brainer at this stage to to have an, an independent medical practitioner, certainly at the biggest games? 
Um, yeah, you'd think that it would be because there is a, a certainly, as you mentioned, a latent uh, pressure on doctors, and and I know they have their own um, uh, ethics and, and guidelines as a, as medical professionals, but they are part of the team, they're part of the staff, and uh, you want to get they want to get players back on the field, um, and what's concerning maybe is that you know if the, their prize roles as well to be doctor of uh, a rugby team you know doctors want to do it it's 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 a, you know it's like anything else if you're a sports doctor you're operating at the top of your field if you're in at international level and their uh, coaches want players out on the field now they don't necessarily you know i think it's moved away from where it was where you just won't get players on no matter what and they're they're more they are more aware of of the long-term consequences of of you know brain injury but they're definitely in the heat of battle um, there are pressures that are imposed on those doctors, and you know, you know, they're also human beings as well. So, um, it, I think it's it's better if that's taken completely out of uh, of the a team members, as it were, hands, and uh, it's within a, it goes to an independent third party. Now, I don't know the doctor. You know, if there are issues there with um, the relationship between doctor and patient. Um, but I think it's it's in other sports they have um, they have um, third party uh, doctors and uh, it seems to work reasonably well. I think uh, you know yes it's a, it's a bigger expense, but I think if you talk if you look at it in a, in a longer term view, it could be it could be cheap. All right, lads, I appreciate that. Really, really interesting thoughts, Shane Horgan and Shane Jennings. Thanks a million. Cheers, guys. Mm. You remember my grandmother? No disrespect. When I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, "Hmm." And I know a butt whooping was coming at the back. I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is born. Jane Jane James Tony is born. I ran Barkley is born. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said, I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Just Google it and get your own information. I'm an alien. You should be going. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Mm. All right, hope you enjoyed that. I was really interested in what the boys had to say about concussion. Um particularly Shane Jennings in that he speaking from a very personal point of view he said and this is something we talked about at the top of the show Ken whether or not players are getting more likely to to actually call it on themselves to come off and they get a bang in the head and he said he absolutely is that he's come to realise now late in his career that you've only got one brain and you have to take care of it by implication earlier in the career I'm guessing he played through a few of these. Mm. Has, it done, has that done anything to convince you that the culture might be changing? Well, of course. I mean, of course, it will change. It, just, it takes a, it takes a long time. I mean, the idea of being brave, you know, of being of, of, of physical courage, you know, the ability to withstand pain, to endure suffering in the cause of a team, is an ancient idea. I mean, that's that goes back as long as as, as long as there have been men, own <laughs> men and men and women, you know, who engaged in in sort of a difficult tasks, difficult team tasks. You know, so that's, it's, that's a sort of an ingrained thing in the culture. Whereas the sort of knowledge that a concussion is actually a serious neurological incident with potentially 
really dangerous ramifications. You know, if you to get another injury of the same nature, you know, this this is a recent, comparatively recently acquired piece of knowledge. I mean, because of the nature of of the injuries that can result from concussion, there's a really long time lag between the injury happening and the consequences becoming apparent, often decades. You know what I mean? So it's not as though it's it's not the kind of thing that you automatically put two and two together. You know, someone got concussed a lot at one point in their life, and then much later in life developed problems. You, you wouldn't. It's not oh, a, completely even. Even the diagnosis. I mean, there, there was there was a time quite recently that everybody thought smoking was. <laughs> I mean, you know, seems seems all right. You, you know what I mean? There, it, it it even took a while to kind of establish a to prove a link between smoking and various diseases. So in the case of concussion, that's, that's, that's recent knowledge. I'm so you sure. think, it, yeah, you think it will change gradually? Just that uh, specific so, not solution, that solution I had, everything will be fine if my solution is put in place, but the, at least uh, one mitigating factor, one, uh, there, there could be one barrier put in, uh, put, put in front of the issue of concussion, and that is bringing in independent medical practitioners. I, I put it to Shane Horgan there, I thought it sounded like a good idea. You're not so sure that would work in practice. Well, how do, how can you? How do we know this guy's independent? I mean, if Jose Mourinho, how is do we managing, know? How do we know a referee is independent? I mean, you have to, you have to. Yeah, but trust a ref- if somebody's not in the pay, but, but, but a referee is making decisions based on much more objective events than than this medical guy. I mean, what on what basis is he diagnosing a player as unfit to continue? I mean, it's a, it's a little bit different from. I mean, a, well, refereeing, he, a refereeing decision in rugby can be can be looked at on the screen and examined yeah. to see whether it's correct. A medical decision is a little bit more. Well, it's it's not as cut and dried. I mean, if it was, we wouldn't really have this problem. Of course, it? it's not as cut and dried, but that that's precisely the point that the that little bit of room for interpretation might go a certain way if you're involved with. The if team, you're, if you know, you're and, 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 and if the coach, there. we all saw the uh, Toulouse coach, Guinoves, wasn't that who it was yeah, uh, yeah. last season, chasing a player and the team doctor down the tunnel to get this guy back on the field, essentially. Yeah. And this kind of stuff does happen. It's not usually quite as overt as that, but there is a, an unwritten pressure there. And I think that do, would... would do, doctors, I, I doctors, say, doctors, I mean, it's part of a doctor's job to be calm in a crisis, sure, but... I don't see how having an independent referee would stop something like that from happening. I mean, you know, I don't think. Well, he I says, Guy Nelves, get out of my face. medical referee. He says, he says, Guy Nelves, get out of my face. You're not, I'm I've not, never talked to you before. I've, I've never talked to you before. I'm not going to talk to you again. Like I'm, I'm independent. I'm not, I'm not, I'm nothing to do with your club. Whereas the doctor who has to keep working with Guy Nelves and see him on the Monday morning mm. might well have, and who might have an emotional connection to the team as well. I think that, I think managers would still do it. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned the name of Mourinho because he's the kind of the most extreme case of that. But, you know, um, to introduce. To introduce an authority who's going to make you know decisions which can be made to appear subjective, um, I think it's just it's difficult. I mean, how do we all, how do we all agree? The player says I'm okay to go on. How, you know, you're taking well, what's me out the, of the well, game. What's the point, of, not, what's the point different of doctors from, at all? Then it's different from. We'll just all diagnose ourselves. Well, the doctors are the, the doctors are there to look after the players, mm. right? The doctors are there to look after the players. But again, there's 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 probably still a voluntary element in this. You know, I mean, what you're suggesting is that, that a doctor... I mean, it's one thing for a referee to send off a player. Say, you can't play in the game anymore because I've seen you just kick that guy in the head. Right? You're off. What can the player say? Well, referees get those decisions a, wrong but a, as well. But a guy... But referees get those decisions wrong. So, so that's also... Subjective. So here I am. I'm, I'm a guy. I'm, play, I'm playing a game. I'm playing... I think I'm playing well. I get a knock on the head. I feel a bit woozy. I get up. But I think I'm, I think I'm okay to continue. And an independent... An independent guy who isn't even part of my team... Yeah, 100%. That's... Comes and sends me off. Yeah, 
I don't think so. Be I mean, replaced by another player. No, I don't. Exactly I don't, I don't think so. I th- well, I think I think to be honest, it's it's uh, what what are the doctors? What are the team doctors supposed to do? They, this is their job. You're taking their job out of their there's, hands. There's plenty other. There's They're plenty the ones to concern who, them. And sometimes, as I mentioned in the piece, that that uh, game against South Africa, there were four concussions, as far as I know, in a relatively similar period in the same game. How is one doctor or even a couple of doctors involved in a team meant to? accurately diagnose each of those concussions. So how many independent medical practitioners are you talking about well, at le- involving well, well, here? One for, for one for every player who might get concussed. Well, at least one. 46, 46 neurologists. Nah, you're being flippant now. 46 independent one neurologists. Help. One would help. And okay. two medical teams. But it'd be good news for neurologists out there. What if your independent medical uh, neurologist, uh, what, what if the doctor, uh, if the team doctor disagrees with him? Team doctor says there's nothing wrong with my player. Let my player back on. It's not a, it's not unknown for doctors to disagree. They disagree all the time. The, the, the independent doctor would obviously have to have the power to make the call. Otherwise, there'd be no point having them there if they can be overruled by the team to, doctor. To and that's what, that's what FIFA have, isn't it? That they have a guy there who's you know, and they, they, we saw that at the World Cup in Brazil that there were situations where players did appear to be concussed. There was an independent medical advisor there saying, "I think your players can concussed." It kept and happening in the World Cup. Yeah, actually. and then, it was, but it was, he was overruled. overruled by the team. Yeah, so yeah. those guys. But I mean, are, the the big problem that I think when you uh, look at what happened to George North over the weekend was that we put all of our stock in these return to play protocols and every time a player is concussed that's the phrase you hear the return to play protocol suggests the player will be fine ergo right that's it don't let, we, we don't talk about it anymore the return to play protocols passed George North fit to return and we can only presume that the, that the Welsh doctor did everything that they could mm. beyond the, the didn't see the video analysis that's that's what they're telling us they didn't see the video but they did talk to George North and they said right okay George you're fine to play that if if the return to play protocols means that a guy can be knocked unconscious and he can then pass that test yeah. a couple of minutes later that's the big problem that's the huge problem yeah. you, I mean you, you can't if everyone's everyone's answer to this is well you know you do the test and if you do the test then you go back to play that's fine but the te- there's obviously a problem with and that's the what, test. And that's, and, that's, and that's what Barry O'Driscoll says, the uh, Irish doctor who left the IRB a couple of years ago because he didn't agree with the direction the anti-concussion movement uh, was taking, medically speaking. I saw him chatting about this on BBC Breakfast uh, on, on TV there on Saturday. And it was put to him, look, surely the players are getting big. Uh, the, the, uh, there's an issue around the players getting very big and the potential damage they can do to each other. But there's a counterpoint to that, that they should be, should be, their body should be getting big enough to take the hits as well. And he said, well, whatever their bodies, their brains aren't getting any stronger. You know, their yeah. brains are the soft Your piece. skull is your skull. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think that that's definitely true. Like, if the tests, the players are able to, to somehow get through these tests, whether the tests are devised so as to enable players to learn how to do that, even, you know, when... Mm in a much reduced state. But again, I don't see how, you know, if, if, if the tests are the tests, then what difference would it make if they were administered by an independent guy or, or by the team guy? You know, if the, if the guy can pass the test, then the independent guy certainly can't take him off. Whereas the team, the, the team doctor might actually be able to say, you know, I really think he needs to come off, you know, for his own good. For compassionate and, and reasons. An independent which, guy can't yeah. do that. He's not part of the team. Yeah, there's an argument there. I still think that's you know, I still think it's a, a little simplistic, but we can't really talk about it all day. Just to mention, Rory Best is um, another player who got concussed. At least he was taken off. Looks like he'll be back next week, though, Murph, as part of the uh, the Irish medical update today. What's going on I there? want you, I want you to look on me, on as a conduit for the words of Mick Kearney, Irish rugby team doctor, right? Not as Kieran Murphy. Team manager. Team manager. Precisely. If, if you're using your managers as your doctors, <laughs> <laughs> then you're in big trouble. <laughs> yes, did I say team doctor? I did, of course. I mean, 
you know, I'm sh- I'm sure in a pinch he could probably do a job, but he is the team manager. And, uh, good, well, good news all around. Roy Best suffered a concussion, he said, but he's been very well since the game and has been completing a gradual return to play protocol. If he completes this process without any symptoms, he will be available for selection. Sean O'Brien has had an MRI scan and the hamstring strain that stopped preventing him from playing was on the minor end of the scale. Hopeful that he'll train with the squad tomorrow. Keane Healy trained fully last week, including some scrummaging. He came through very well. Available for selection. Johnny Sexton has been cleared to train fully and is available for selection. Jamie Heaslip, Owen Redden, Dave Kearney are fully recovered and will train this week. So, uh, yeah, uh, nothing but good news. Good to see you have your news now sniffing at the stories, Murph. And by that I mean opening your email account to see what the IRFU have sent in this hour. Well, you said potato on. Uh, the Irish Times football podcast is already out. Murph looks disappointed with my. Uh... <laughs> not, not at all. I mean, it's it's you know it's sometimes you know you just got to go through the go through the motions here. I mean, you, you asked me for an injury yeah. update. I give you. An You're not going to get any better than Mick Carney and so I'm not going to win a Grammy on the back of it, uh, Owen. But Ken, what's in the football podcast? That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that. Really? Well, you can laugh. You have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. Come down to Anfield and we'll see them open. What you doing down here, you Johnny man? (laughs) The stab in the back, Owen. That's what they're calling Atletico Madrid's 4-0 destruction of Real Madrid. Real Madrid went out there, heads held high, chest puffed out, but then... The flash of treacherous steel uh, planted between their shoulder blades by Gareth Bale. Uh, Gareth Bale, why, why does he keep doing this to Real Madrid? The most, they make him the most expensive player in the world. And yet he betrays them uh, and sells them down the river against their city rivals and, uh, and, le- and, and opens them up to being destroyed for now. I, I, can't, I can't get over it, Owen. Uh, that's what we're gonna. That's one of the things we're gonna talk Don't about. Don't forget about the African Nations Cup final. And mind yeah. you, hero, the Ivory Coast goalkeeper. We talked about him too. Yeah, the African uh, African Nations Cup. Jonathan Wilson's in Equatorial Guinea. He'll talk to us about that. And we're also going to talk, obviously, about Harry Kane, one of Ireland's greatest ever sports people. Tony McCoy shocked the racing world at the weekend when he announced his decision to retire at the end of the season after riding his 200th winner of the season at Newbury. It shouldn't be too much of a shock, I guess, when a 40 year old man says he's going to quit uh, physically and mentally grueling profession but it, so it goes it's somebody of McCoy's reputation it was generally thought he had plenty of years left in him given his toughness and the fact that his ability to win remains absolutely undimmed Damon Dunphy has regularly mentioned McCoy's name and talking about some of the very best sports people around and he joins us now I'm glad to say Eamon good to chat to you as always this has taken the racing world by surprise a little bit did you expect him to go? Um, I didn't expect him to retire um, but when I heard I was really happy uh, that he had decided to retire while he's at the top. I think in his own words, he said, I wanted to uh, retire when people were saying, why is he retiring, rather than people saying, why is he not retiring? <laughs> and I think he's, a, he's a, the most, the greatest sportsman I think we've ever seen in many ways. Um, on a day-to-day basis, uh, there's not a lot of glamour in national hunt racing. We see the big festivals and Leopardstown yesterday and Cheltenham, Liverpool. But there's an awful lot of racing at um, uh, Catrick, for example, where McCoy's riding you know, today. Uh, Fontwell, Plumpton. It's very unglamorous. It's very hard. Uh, and he has been at the top of it 
he's going to be champion for the 20th consecutive year. Uh, keep his weight down to around 10-7, uh, which is, uh, involves incredible ordeals, um, lying in scalding water, you know, at night, uh, eating virtually nothing. Uh, and he does it all with such extraordinary determination and uh, talent. And riding horses over, jump, over fences is an, is an incredible skill, especially in his case, again, like Ruby Walsh is, is equally as great a rider as, as, as Tony McCoy, but he doesn't ride as many handicappers and pretty ordinary horses as McCoy does. And he gives them all the same, you know, focus, concentration, seeing a stride out in the country, the dangers every day. So I think he takes every single box that you could imagine for absolute greatness. Yeah, another uh, distinction maybe between himself and Ruby Walsh is that a lot of people would say that Ruby is the, the more naturally stylistic kind of jockey, that looks a little more natural in the saddle, whereas McCoy, I don't know if it's that he has to work at it more, but it's just that he, he, he seems to drive a horse on, he seems to drive himself on in a different way. Yeah, I think in Ruby's case, when you're riding real, real top horses, which Ruby has been lucky enough to do for Willie Mullins and Paul Nichols, uh, they're always they're mostly on the bridle until you get to the business end, so it looks uh, more stylish. What Tony McCoy is often riding is a handicapper, um, a pretty undistinguished animal, uh, and he, that means you're in the drive position. Maybe for in his case. He's, he can have them off the bridle uh, a mile from home, and, but still going forward. And through all of that, in national hunt racing, a lot of races are won out in the country where you have to see a stride, get an ordinary horse jumping, uh, give a horse confidence, a novice. So there's so much involved. And in his case, it's seven days a week, as it is for most of the national hunt jockeys, seven days a week. Uh, uh, there's the falls, of course. Um, but also to have the appetite uh, and the desire for success that he has uh, and the discipline and dedication that he has it's, uh, and the, the intelligence. This is applied intelligence, Owen, you know. It's, it's amazing. I think there isn't a person in the world, and certainly who knows anything about sport, who doesn't love this man and respect him deeply. The, the, that word is interesting, intelligence. It's not always the one that we hear associated with sports people, unfortunately, and maybe with, with jockeys. What do you mean by applied intelligence? Well, every horse is, is an individual. You, you, you don't get up and do the same thing on every horse. So in a day, he might ride six or even seven horses, and sometimes he might ride at two meetings. So each of those horses requires understanding. Uh, it has its own quirks. He's got to work out those things, and that is an intellectual exercise. Then, through, a, through race riding, you've got to decide, are they going too fast? Are they going fast enough? Uh, you've got to get a horse racing at its pace. Jumping uh, is another thing, seeing a stride. Uh, you know, it's not really instinctive. It's applied intelligence, and you're making so many decisions. Say, in a three-mile race or in the Gold Cup, which is one you know, uh, and even the Hennessy at Leprechaun the weekend. I mean, that's a three-mile chase of the highest possible quality. You'd have to make maybe uh, 
30 or 40 key decisions in that moment, in that race. And some of them would be paradoxical. You know, uh, so people, you know, if you're riding to impress people on the, in the stand, uh, that's a different matter. But he's, he's riding the win, which means you don't always do what looks like the obvious thing to do. But in his case, and of course in Ruby's case, with so many of the great jockeys, Johnny Murta, people like that, they're right more often than they're wrong. He was interesting, I thought, Eamon, talking this weekend about the injuries he had earlier this season because I find interviewing jockeys that it's not, you think it will be fascinating talking about these falls and the dangers and the injuries, but oftentimes they're not that interesting talking about it, maybe because they don't even want to, well, they, they, they can't think too much about those things, I guess. No, but, I, think, yeah. I think you're absolutely right, Owen. I think they don't want to talk about them because they don't want to be uh, the fear to grow. I mean, jockeys lose their nerve. Jump jockeys lose their nerve. Flat jockeys lose their nerve as well, which means they don't go for the gaps they used to go for, or, you know, they don't really go at the fence uh, the the way they used to. Uh, And, of course, all of that communicates itself to the horse that's underneath you. A a bit of hesitancy. One of the most extraordinary things about McCoy, and I watch him every day, doing his work is he can transform pre-ordinary horses, drive them into a fence uh, and get them jumping the way nobody else can, actually give them confidence and belief. It's quite uh, uh, without, he's without peer, uh, I think. And I think everyone really understands that. There are great jockeys, Paul Carberry, Ruby Walsh. There are great jump jockeys that are really, really great. What makes him different is the degree to which he's done it over such a long period of time. He started with Jim Bulger. He went to Toby Balding. Then he went uh, with Martin Pipe. Uh, Then he has this uh, amazing association with J.P. McManus. And a lot of J.P. McManus' horses are not champions. They're handicappers. Uh, So it's uh, it's been a glorious career. Uh, And all through it, he's been... Uh, well, certainly in the latter years, comfortable with the media. He's been, he, I've met him, I've been lucky enough to meet him. No conceit or vibe of any kind of him. A real rock-solid Arsenal fan. Liam Brady is his hero. <laughs> um, you know, and he's a, a proper man in a nice way. Uh, and that's another reason why he's got his wife, Chantel, two beautiful children. I'm glad he's he's getting out of it because it's a terribly dangerous game. Has he been good for your pocket over the years? Well, he has, yeah. I think he's been good for most punters' pocket because, you know, he he, he does deliver what seems uh, in races very often uh, to be quite impossible. Um, but I think uh, money, this overrides money. The admiration I feel for him is the admiration I know that everybody uh, who loves horses and sport feels for a great, great champion uh, who remains a rock-solid, decent man, who, who who comes, you know, from a modest background. His father was, a, uh, you know, a small farmer in the north, and uh, he has become and will remain an iconic figure uh, as long as there's racing. You're clearly very passionate about the sport, Eamon. Where did that uh, come from, the the love of um, racing? Hanging around betting shops <laughs> <laughs> when I was playing football in England. No, I, I love racing. I love the people in racing. And I particularly love National Hunt racing because 
there are wonderful people in it. A, a, a small man with a few horses uh, can just as easily win the Gold Cup. An Irishman won the Gold Cup uh, on a 33 with a 33 to 1 chance a few years ago, just from a small table in Cork. Uh, it isn't really about princes uh, and, you know, tycoons and uh, plutocrats. National hunt racing is the people's sport. Uh, horses around for a long time, and most of those jockeys who take those appalling risks that Tony McCoy uh, takes and Ruby, uh, most of them don't get many winners. Uh, they take terrible risks. Uh, they do still do the weight uh, that and the sort of stress of getting down to ten stone something, um, and they get nothing for it. They're journeymen, and I think they're wonderful people really wonderful people and you know a lot of the ills we see in society in general are not present uh, on the racetrack and in the weighing room Eamon great to talk to you as always thanks a million my pleasure yeah very interesting to hear Eamon outline the uh, his his reasoning behind his admiration for Tony McCoy the inquired intelligence I thought was quite interesting there it's not something that we always talk about with with regards as I, as I put to Eamon you don't necessarily I don't know. People don't often think of it as uh, you, you can see. Certainly, with with horse racing and jump jockeys, you can see the slog and the toughness and all those parts of it that are required to make it. But uh, there's, there's it's a, very intuitive. It's an intuitive kind of yeah, yeah, a, a, extremely intuitive uh, sport and a, a, a pursuit that McCoy has mastered. Yeah, over the course of twenty years or more, um, that idea that you can't be a good jockey riding a horse one way. That to be a good jockey means that you have to ride a horse whichever way that horse demands. Particularly when you're riding a lot of handicaps and a lot of those weaker horses as outlined by Eamon there. Another man who Eamon Dunphy talks about quite a lot is Henry Shefflin. Mm. Usually in the same context when he's trying to talk about the great sports people that we've produced in comparison to whatever sports person he might be talking about at that stage. Now Shefflin Murph may well not retire if he keeps his current form up. Yeah, he, well, he scored five points from play for Ballyhale against Gort in the the club finals yesterday, or club semi final yesterday, and I mean the energy levels, the hunger, uh, outrageous. You know, I mean what he still the the things that you're looking for him to if, if see if there's any diminution in there, there isn't. You know, even though when maybe when we spoke to him on television uh, in October of last year, there you know reading between the lines, maybe you thought this might be the end. I mean. What you're talking about now is, does he get a fairy tale ending on St. Patrick's Day, uh, winning a club, uh, club all Ireland final uh, with Ballyhale? But the the thing about the thing about Shefflin is there there's always a fairy tale ending in the offing. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, the, like the the likelihood of Kilkenny winning the all Ireland this year. I mean, I, I don't know what the betting is, but they're probably two to one, maybe something like that. I mean, there's that that's the chances you get of. Henry having another fairy tale ending in September. Oh, At yeah. what stage do you choose the fairy tale ending? I mean, that, you know, you you can get very greedy, and you know, Shefflin is greedy for for success but and for medals. I would say it's only a fairy tale ending from his point of view if he's involved in it, yeah, reasonably heavily. Uh, there wouldn't have been a fairy tale ending, for example, if they'd won the All Ireland. The, even if they'd won the All Ireland the first day in the drawn final against Tip, he only came on with four minutes to go yeah. in the end. He Barely got a chance to get into it. It would have been a, a very, very good ending, but yeah. I don't know. Uh, and, and there's always the fear then that next season, 
is he going to be used even more sparingly by mm. Brian Cody? He might not be. He's playing so well, he might be straight back in the starting yeah. lineup for all we we're, uh, we're in the realms of extreme greed here when it comes to trying <laughs> yeah, to... actually, now that I think about it, <laughs> that's not a fairy tale ending. He only yeah. played part of their All-Ireland Final. You know, victory. sure, he won an All-Ireland <laughs> Final, but, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, we don't really have time to go through uh, all of the other GA action uh, this week, but uh, Jack McCaffrey's goal against Donegal on Saturday evening for the dubs uh, set me to thinking about just what exactly I look for in a really good... Well, just tell us goal. about the McCaffrey goal for people who didn't see it. It was pretty picked spectacular. Up, picked up the ball in the halfway line, played a little 1-2, uh, got the return just as he crossed the 45-yard line, uh, haired through the middle of the Donegal defence. Turned on the afterburners. You could, t- you could say that, and you'd be right on. Um, got to the 21-yard line, and then said, right, I've gone far enough. I'm just going to stick this in the top corner. And, uh, it, you know, there... There's a certain, say with football, there are many, in, in soccer, there are many different types of ways to score a goal. And there's a lot of respect maybe for the Emilio Butrigueno style of, you know, his heart rate actually dropped when he got into the penalty area. This is your, this is your Henning Berg story again. It's, yeah. the one that, <laughs> it's the go-to cliche. But the, the Gaelic footballer in a situation like that is to do the exact opposite of what Emilio Butrigueno would do, which is to close your eyes and to leather the ball extremely hard. Because this is what the fans want to see. Joe Cavanaugh's goal for Cork in the 1993 All-Ireland Final against Derry. Basically, these goals can only be scored by people playing in three positions. Well, four positions maybe at a push. Centre-half back is the number one. You want to see your centre-half back bounce off three tackles on the 45-yard line, hop the ball maybe once, and then reef the ball extremely hard in the general direction of the goal and hope that it flies into the top corner. Yep. Centre forwards, also, wing backs, and of course, the Liam Hayes style midfielder shot from 35 yards into the top corner. But, you know, composure in that situation, that's, we don't that's want the to last see thing you want. No, we don't want to see that. And uh, if Jack McCaffrey can keep that sort of keep that sort of thing up I'll, I'll be a very happy man in case you didn't hear the start of this podcast or more likely if you've already forgotten it we're going to be taking this show live to the Sugar Club in Dublin two weeks from today Monday 23rd of February it's a great venue we'll have some superb guests for you there and if you want to be there for the Irish Times Second Captains Sports Night with Rabo Direct get on to irishtimes.com forward slash second captains to apply for free tickets so irishtimes.com forward slash second captains you can also check out our Twitter handle at second captains and thanks in the meantime for listening to today's show we've also got our football podcast ready for you to listen to now so do um, keep those earphones in and have a listen to the football whatever you plan to do for the next 50-55 minutes just listen to Ken because it was his first football podcast since returning from his holidays thanks for today Ken Uh, thanks Owen I mean it wasn't just me it's not just me for 55 minutes it's you and Kieran as well, and <laughs> to, also to a lesser extent, myself Miguel and, and and Jonathan, and maybe if you all the old there. gang, Hotsy, <laughs> Mrs C, all the old gang back together again. Thanks for listening. Take thank care. You all, thank you, Ken. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. <laughs>